Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Pete Sinclair. I'm a member of the, uh, the congregation here, and it's great to be with you this afternoon. Um, uh, we are back in John's Gospel. In fact, we're back with the woman at the well. We looked at this passage uh, last week, and coincidentally, we were in this passage again the week before at the end of our series on human sexuality. So hopefully, uh, the previous two preachers have left something for me to say. I think they will have. But before we get to this passage, I, um, I want to make you uh, aware of something. Uh, those of you who know me well will know that I'm a very perceptive person. And uh, arriving at church this afternoon, I've used my um, incredible powers of deduction um, to come to the following conclusion. It is almost time for Christmas. Now, I'm looking around and I can see that people aren't that surprised, so maybe you've got some good skills of deduction too. But did you know that it is the first day of Advent today? Because it's almost time for Christmas. It's not Christmas yet. So, um, happy Advent. Advent, we've heard so far in this service, is a time of waiting. It's a time of joyful waiting because the light of Christmas is not far away. And as we've heard, we also remember that we are waiting. We're waiting for that joyful moment that Jesus will appear again when he comes again. But during Advent, we're waiting in the dark. And in the darkness, as we wait, there is a sense that the life of the world has been drained away. The leaves have all fallen from the trees. The plants on your windowsill are looking neglected. The ground is hard and cold and lifeless. Maybe you remember these words from carol services of years gone by. In the bleak midwinter, Frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow. In the bleak midwinter, long ago. I'm sorry to start on such a chilly note in a sermon. A bleak note. But it's hard not to as you look at the world around us. You see, the world wasn't just cold and wintry long ago. It feels again like the world is cold and wintry now. A chill has fallen over the world. And as we enter the winter of 2023, it feels like our world is drained of life too. More than ever before, on our phones, we have access to news updates and images and videos from around the world from war zones that show us just how lifeless our world can be. Maybe closer to home a few weeks ago in our series on human sexuality, uh, Mark shared some very disturbing uh, facts and, and figures about the, the, the sexual culture of the West. And it's an extremely complicated um, uh, topic, but I was struck as Mark was speaking 
that the West's sexual culture has taken sex, which is meant to be a conduit for life, and has often turned it in for a way for men and women to harm one another. Jesus, in John chapter 3, puts our world like this. This is the verdict, he says. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. What a devastating description from Jesus. A lifeless people living in a lifeless world. How do you even begin to respond to a world like that when you look at it realistically, when you really look at it? I think, maybe like me, uh, people do one of two things. They either switch off, they think this cannot be fixed, this darkness, it's too relentless, and they become numb. I'll watch Netflix instead. Or two, they become desperate. I must fix this now, so they campaign and campaign. And when the campaigning does not make a dent in the darkness, they say, I I don't know what to do now. You see, the Gospel of John is set in our world, in this world, in our dark world. But it's the story of how our world can be transformed into a place full of life. And who is it that brings this life to a lifeless world? Well, we've been seeing in the Gospel of John, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the bringer of life. Remember Jesus, as as we've been going through this, um, this book, he's been announced as a bridegroom in John 3, 29. Uh, and, And John tells us this is what God's life is like. It's like a bridegroom coming to marry the person that he loves, to bring life to her, the bride. And we've heard that Jesus has come to create children who are the images of life, aren't they? When you see children running around, it's, yeah, it's life. But Jesus hasn't come to create physical babies, John 1 verse 13 tells us the kind of children Jesus has come to make. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Children of God. So Jesus has come as a bridegroom. He's come to create children, to give life. And of course the question is then, who is this bride? Who has Jesus come to marry? And this is where we arrive at the well. Why a well? Seems like a random place to set this uh, story, doesn't it? Well, you see, the well was the place in the Old Testament where individuals met their future spouses. In fact, Jacob, who is a character who gets mentioned in the reading, uh, met his wife, Rachel, where, you guessed it, at a well. So you see, in this story, we have a groom, Jesus, We even have a venue. All that we're waiting for is a bride. And who should appear but this Samaritan woman? Now, let's be clear. Jesus and the Samaritan woman do not get married. But St. Augustine, the church father, says this, that the woman represents God's people. She represents the church. And so you see who this marriage is between. It's between God 
and people. Just notice for a minute how extraordinarily weird this image is. We have an image of marriage showing God's love for people, but the actors who make up the scene are very unusual. Jesus is a single man. He never gets married in his life. And people are represented by an outsider. The Samaritan woman, remember, is an outsider. She's a social outsider, but she's also a sexual outsider too. She's not got it all together. She's not a blushing bride in a white dress. She's not picture-perfect wedding material. And yet she is given the dignity, the honor of representing the church in the story of God's love for humanity. And you know what that says to me? It says that anyone here today who feels like an outsider is invited to participate in this story as much as anyone else. Jesus marries the church. And when he draws people into this relationship, this deep marriage-like relationship, life emanates forth. It flows into the world. And in this passage, we see the ripples of this life as it goes out. What is this life like? What does it do? Well, first, this life transforms us personally. It will water the deepest depths of our souls. As the woman departs from Jesus, uh, that's, that's the beginning of the story. The woman departs from Jesus. But don't miss as she departs this tiny detail in verse 28. Look down with me. Then, John tells us, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town. Then, leaving her water jar. You see, this woman has been carrying the water jar for years. It's the receptacle that she literally uses to draw life up from out of the ground. And at the beginning of our story, it just gets binned off, gets thrown away. Now, last week, Chad said to us uh, in his sermon that the woman drawing water from out of the well shows us what is going on inside her. It's the desire for meaning and satisfaction. And remember, uh, Chad used this um, image the image of a Sprite can, because remember the old Sprite advert uh, that the world tells us to obey our thirst. Keep pursuing satisfaction and meaning by pursuing the things in the world. So you say, in a sense, this woman has been carrying the water jar every day of her life as she looks for satisfaction in the world. It's full, but it gets empty. And it must be filled again, just like our desires can never fully be satisfied. But if I can put it like this, if the woman is using the sprite can method of getting satisfaction, at the beginning of our passage today, it gets canned off. It gets retired from service. It's been left spinning in the middle of the desert, and it's redundant. Why? Because something greater has arrived, something more satisfying and life-giving, faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, this life transforms her socially. Look down with me at, uh, at 4 verse 12. Uh, not 4 verse 12. Uh, yes, 4 verse 12. Um, we're told that the woman 
is there at noon. Why is she at the well at noon? Well, she's there at midday because it's the hottest part of the day and no one else is there. Why would she want to be at the well when no one else is there? Well, because she's a social outcast and because it's easier to hide yourself from others when you're full of shame, like she is. You must know this as I do. Those bits of us that are dark or broken, they're easier to hide away than to bring into the light. Why? Because men loved the darkness. And isn't it crazy to think that this woman, this woman who has been hiding, is the first person to become the, the church's first evangelist? Verse 29, she starts talking to the people. And we learn in verse 39 that many of them hear her story. Many. She's been hitting the WhatsApp groups hard. And what is she saying to them? Well, her testimony concerns the very personal things that Jesus has said to her. Verse 39. So you see, not only is the shame of who she was gone... But she uses her life as a stage, a stage to play out a new story, a story of how life has changed her. Imagine the ability to share with others without shame. Imagine a community made up of people who weren't hiding themselves. It would be full of life. And that's the life that Jesus brings. Where is this all going? Well, you can feel the flow of the action as the story goes on. The woman runs off, she gathers people, and they head out from the town back towards Jesus. And John does something quite odd here. He breaks the narrative. And we get this strange interjection of the disciples as they discuss food. Now, don't get me wrong, I um, I don't blame them. Um, But it feels a bit like we're undercutting the exciting bit of the story with a scene that is basically about the first century Israel's version of Tesco meal deals. What's going on? More about that in in a second. Here's what I think it does to the story, though. It creates a sense of suspense. Let me tell you about Alfred Hitchcock's bomb. Alfred Hitchcock uh, was a very famous filmmaker, and uh, in an illustration that he gave, he describes the difference between surprise in a film and suspense. If I want to surprise you in a movie, here's how I shoot the scene. I have two people sat in a restaurant, they're talking, they're eating, and then boom, a bomb goes off. Surprise, there was a bomb underneath the table. If I want to create suspense, this is what I do. I show you the bomb under the table. I show you the wires and the timer. And then I show you the people at the table. But now you're thinking, when will the bomb go off? I've created suspense. And you see, the momentum in our story in John 4 is building. As the disciples stand around, they're looking at the options on Deliveroo Galilee, thinking about food, and they can't hear the rumble of the thunder of the crowd storming towards them. But we can, can't we? Verse 30, they're on their way to Jesus. When will they arrive, we think? 
What will happen when they get there? Where will this all end? A person transformed by life, a community transformed by life, and then we're hit with this in verse 39. Many Samaritans believed. Faith has burst through the ground and come to the Samaritans. And this is so significant because these people are the last group that you would expect to receive this life from Jesus Christ. They're Samaritans. They're outsiders. Again, they're the dodgy ones, the, people that pe- the ones that people don't go near. So you see, this life has crossed this very significant cultural and religious barrier. And then the Samaritans say this, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. This life, this flow of life, this water that Jesus can give will go on and on and on to the farthest corners of the world to save the world from its lifelessness. And it is available to every man, every woman, every child, no matter if they are a Jew or Samaritan, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their gender, no matter their religious background, no matter their sexual history. This is life for the world. A person transformed, a community transformed, the whole world will be transformed by the life that this man brings. Friends, the world may feel lifeless now, hard as iron and as cold as stone, but in the presence of Jesus Christ, life bursts from cold earth. And despite the dark days, the fields can bloom with the green and gold of harvest time. There's an old Advent hymn that I love which describes Jesus this way. He, that's Jesus, he shall come down like showers upon the fruitful earth. Love, joy, and hope like flowers spring in his path to birth. Jesus Christ, the bringer of life. Now, if Jesus is the bringer of life, how should we live as the church. Well, you see, Jesus brings life, but the church, the church are the harvesters of life. We're farmers. Um, Have you ever read the children's book, uh, Back at the Ranch? It's an old favorite of mine. It's a book that compares two people. They're a couple. One is called Rancher Hicks, and the other is his wife, Elna. Here is the synopsis. When Rancher Hicks drives 84 miles to Sleepy Gulch for excitement, his wife, Elna, stays at the ranch. She misses the 12-year-old wanted posters at Sleepy Gulch's post office, a never-ending checker game, and Sleepy Gulch's hotspot, Millie's Luncheonette. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, all that happens to Elna is that she strikes oil, inherits a fortune, and is visited by the president. So, it's one for our American friends. The comparison is this. Rancher Hicks lives his life as if nothing is ever going to change. So he heads off to Sleepy Gulch for the same old thing. At Millie's Luncheonette, which is where he has to make the most important choice of the whole book, the menu comprises of the following. 
mashed potatoes, fried potatoes, baked potatoes, boiled potatoes, or if Rancho Hicks is feeling really adventurous, French fries. But Elna, his wife, when change comes, she's alive to it. She's ready to respond. And likewise, the disciples and the woman have different responses to change when they see signs of life. You see, this life is given to the woman, and what does she do? She goes out and tells other people. She basically strikes spiritual oil and whoosh, it comes out of the ground when she meets Jesus. And she goes around telling people to build oil wells to tap the oil. But the disciples are a bit like Rancher Hicks. They're completely switched off to the possibility of change in their lives, and they're distracted from the signs of life. Look at their conversation with Jesus. It starts in verse 31. They say to their rabbi, eat. They're thinking about potatoes. Jesus responds in verse 34, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You see, Jesus has a different priority to the disciples' potato preoccupations. There is work to be done, and potatoes can wait. You see, Jesus points out in verse 35 that normally you wait for harvest time. You wait four months. And then when you see signs of life, you reap the harvest. But in this situation, Jesus says, look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. So the reaping should begin now. Signs of life begin bringing in the harvest. What does he mean? Well, there are people responding to my words. And they need to be brought in to receive this life. That is what the Samaritan woman is doing, isn't it? She's drawing her wage. She's working. She's bringing in the harvest. She's leading the Samaritans to Jesus. And when she's done, verse 36, the sower, that's Jesus, and the reaper, that's the Samaritan woman, will celebrate together. They'll put their feet up, and they'll enjoy a hard-earned cider. The church is to bring those in who will respond to Jesus and receive life. I don't know about you, but I feel oftentimes, especially in the dark days that we're living in, a lot like the disciples or Rancher Hicks. Nothing will change. The darkness of the world has made us numb, often, to the possibilities of Jesus changing lives. And when I look at the world or the state of the church in our nation, I can be caught thinking nothing can bring this back from the edge. But friends, let me remind you, Our God is in the business of bringing life from dead places. I know sometimes uh, that touch on, sometimes sermons that touch on evangelism can feel like go and do more evangelism. And certainly I'm not going to tell you not to do evangelism. The woman is a great example of evangelism, isn't she? Get her on the carol flying um, uh, service rotor thingy. But this is not a do more sermon, this is a look at the field sermon. What do I mean? It means look at what is happening in the world as God brings about life. Jesus is at work. Faith is coming to people's hearts. 
Lives are being transformed. Life is emerging. If you want evidence of that, look around the room. The arc of history bends towards the harvest coming in. Are your eyes open to that? Do you know, in the past couple of months, I've had more conversations about my faith than ever before in my life. Do you notice secular commentators like Tom Holland, the historian, and Louise Perry, who we looked at in our series on human sexuality, are beginning to say there is something about this man, Jesus' words. Do you hear the church in Iran and China are exploding with numbers. Ring, 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 ring. Hello, Pete Sinclair's phone. Hello, yes, it's the harvest. I'd like to be harvested now, please. Friends, live your life as if the fields that you will be in on Monday morning, in the presence of Jesus Christ, can burst into life. How can we receive this life? How how do we take hold of it? What does it mean to receive this life? Well, you see, you need to know where the source of this life is. Because the source is Jesus' words. They're the source of life. In the following story, after the Samaritan woman, we get the story of the official son. And in this story, we see another aspect of our lifeless world. Uh, Verse 46, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. The man is desperate. You can hear the desperation, can't you? He went to him and begged him. He's desperate to see the effects of this life in his reality. He's desperate for this life. And Jesus does go on to demonstrate his power to bring life into this situation and his power over death as he brings physical life through healing this boy. But what I find really weird about this story is that we don't get to see the moment in the story of the boy coming back from the brink of death. It's weird. You think about it, the whole story, the whole part of this passage is life flowing out from Jesus. But John doesn't give us the image of the boy kind of emerging from his deathbed. You would have thought that that would have been a slam dunk, wouldn't you, in terms of this message of life. This powerful image of the boy running to meet his father and hugging his dad. We'd all be in tears, wouldn't we? We'd go, yes, life. Rather, in John's telling... The father finds out on the road about his son's healing. Here's the end of the story, verse 52. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. Why is everyone looking at their watches in this story? You see, John wants us to see where the source of this life is. I think John wants to say to us, even in the most desperate situations, the darkest of times, do not miss where life comes from. It comes from the words of Jesus. So if that's the source, how does one respond? What did the man do? In response to Jesus saying, go, your son will live, 
in verse 50, we read, The man took Jesus at his word and departed. You see, to receive this life, you take Jesus at his word. You hear his promises for life, and you trust what he says. That is what it means to believe in him. That is what it means to receive life. If you've never done that before, if you've never taken Jesus at his word before, Advent is a good time to start. But for those of us who have heard Jesus' words and believed them, we wait in the darkness for Jesus, waiting for the life that he promises, even beyond death. We're like the official taking Jesus at his word. And on the road home, we hear the joyful news that at the end of our journey, life waits for us. And so the joy that comes from taking Jesus at his word can be ours now. On the road home, taking Jesus at his word, that's Advent. That's the Christian life. You see, one day this man, Jesus, will return. And one day when he comes, Jesus' word will call out to us. And then the many who believe, the many who take Jesus at his word, with these Samaritans and this woman and this man and this child, they will be raised. They will be raised to life. Let's pray. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Lord, we ask that we would have that faith today, that we would be the joyful receivers of life in Christ. Please make us diligent harvesters, and patient waiters, and bring us finally to the marriage banquet of the Lamb. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.